You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So, high school students, um, this is not just because we wanted to give Mary Beth a break the week of her wedding. We, uh, we intentionally will put you guys in adult classes every now and then so that you get experience of going to church as a real live adult. Um, so that when you leave church, it's not totally awkward for you to, um, to go to church when you're in college. So anyhow, um, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Right, Father, thanks for your goodness and your loving kindness. Thank you um, for your word. Thank you for giving us Christ. And um, Lord, we pray that you would do your purposes here today. We um, our desires that we would hear from, that we would see Christ in this time, and that we would be um, edified and sanctified and come to know and love and trust and glorify you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm curious. Um, this is, I, I, I did not think this would be a very attended class, um, but uh, just because it's a little bit arcane, a little bit academic, I'm kind of curious, from a, particularly from an adult. Kids, you didn't have any choice, so you don't have to answer this question. But from an adult, why did this kind of catch your eye? Yes? Oh, okay. This the class probably won't do much to help you, but <laughs> but hey, you never know. Okay, yeah, Discovery Channel, sure. Uh, yes. Um, admittedly, I would say that going off to college was a time probably of like my lower spiritual mm-hmm. journey, um, because you are surrounded by so much academia and that kind of thing, and so. Yeah. Um, for our children's sake, it's always helpful to hear ahead of time, but I also personally can relate to the title. Okay, good. Thank you. You went to Washington Lee, right? I, I had a friend who came no, home. No insult on Washington Lee. Yeah, no. Well, what I'm about to say might be an insult on Washington Lee. Um, I had a friend come back first semester from Washington Lee, and his New Testament professor had taught him that the book of Daniel was written after Jesus was born. Yeah, that, and which plays into this uh, this topic here. Um, or the second half of it yeah. was. Anybody else have a... Uh... Yes? Well, your Sunday school lesson on hell last week was so good. I, I figured oh, okay. <laughs> Enough already. Enough already. Okay, so the, the topic here, I can remember being a, a kid and like going off to college. And, you know, that summer before you go to college, you have nothing but time on your hands, right? There's no summer reading, nothing to get ready for. You're just laid back with your mind on your money and your money on your mind. And so, um, and so I can remember watching a lot of TV, and you know, here I am. I, I'd kind of had this uh, recommitment, I guess you would say, in my in my faith as I was getting ready to go to college, and I was all excited about the Bible. I was reading the Bible a lot my summer of my senior year, really for the first time in my life. And um, I can remember these documentaries would come on, like History Channel or Discovery Channel, uh, and I'd be all excited. And then they'd say these things that would seem so completely uh, in conflict with what I was hearing at church or what I believed. And I just didn't really have any way to process it. it I just, uh, yeah, I was, um, I was really confused. And uh, I, I would say, too, um, if you're a student who's going to go to college or if, if you're an adult here who took a religion class in college, assuming that you didn't go to like a very conservative evangelical Bible college, um, then what you may have been taught in like a New Testament class or a Bible class was like very um, different than what you heard at church. And so 
Um, so this class is going to be about that. Um, we're going to look at kind of how it is that um, what you may see on the Discovery Channel or what uh, you may hear from a college professor who may hear in the future or have heard, um, why it's so different than what you're accustomed to hearing. Um, we'll start out with this uh, uh, intro to a, a National Geographic show called Jesus Revealed. Uh, prepare yourself. The jokes just write themselves on this one. <laughs> together now, Jesus revealed. <laughs> All right, so I mean, you just can't make that stuff up. I know it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very specious. It's super deceitful and it's very sensational. And this new portrait of Jesus has arisen. Two thousand years later, we really know who he is. Anyhow, um, so from this, uh, oh come on now, um, from this documentary, which I had to watch. For the sake of this class, <laughs> not this class. I taught this. I taught this class at a conference. So, um, but so here are some of the here are some of the uh, the quotes from this documentary. Most scholars believe that Jesus was not born in Bethlehem. We really can never know where Jesus was born. The writers weren't eyewitnesses to his birth. Right, let's break that down a little bit. Have you have you been an eyewitness to anyone's birth except your own baby? Unless you're an OBGYN. Um, Matthew and Luke were probably written in the in the 90s AD, which that's just like nonsense. Um, Jesus never actually delivered the Sermon on the Mount. People wouldn't have been able to hear him. It likely was just a literary work that captures many teachings that he said repeatedly. Um, Jesus was a blue collar. This is classic. Jesus was a blue collar worker. Most of his ideas about God came out of his experience of the difficulties of hard manual labor. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. That's that literature. And, and this is a person who has a PhD, who is a professor at a, you know, at a university, right? Um, you know, Jesus was a Jesus was really more about labor unions than he was about uh, about the kingdom of God or salvation or anything. Finally, Jesus favored Mary Magdalene above his disciples and used to kiss her on the mouth. Were they eyewitnesses to that? Yeah, I presumably, yeah, uh, <laughs> totally. So anyhow, so you know, if you're, um, we have to remember that. The Bible is really anything that we know about God, anything that we believe about God, like, you know, some of the things that we all kind of mostly accept, that he's loving, that he's good, that he's kind, that he's forgiving. Um, things about Jesus, you know, he was the son of God, that he did miracles, that he rose from the dead, things like that. Different eth ethical and moral things that we believe about Christianity. All of it is based on the Bible. Like, every single thing that we know about Jesus is based on the Bible. Like, none of us were there. None of us were eyewitnesses. Um, there really, I mean, there are um, extra biblical 
things about Jesus, but not not such that they give detail where we can really paint a picture of who Jesus was. Uh, and so, basically, if the Bible is being called into question, like if we don't have much confidence in the Bible, then um, it's hard for us to have a whole lot of confidence in the things that we believe about Christ. Like the Bible really is the basis of everything we kind of know and believe about God, salvation, ethics, so on and so forth, from a Christian standpoint. So well, what this class is really going to be about is it's going to be about what you call the higher critical perspective on the Bible. Um, it is a different approach to studying the Bible. Um, and um, what you know, the, the approach that you're accustomed to in an orthodox church is what you call the historic position. Like Matt preached today, preached on 1 John, uh, you know, assuming that 1 John was written by John, uh, assuming that, you know, what we have there is what John delivered as an apostle, as a person who knew Jesus, a person who was inspired by the Holy Spirit. These, there are just certain assumptions that are in place that the higher critical perspective just flushes down the toilet um, and, and, and totally comes out from a different perspective. So, so anyhow, we're going to look at a, a little brief history of how the higher critical perspective came to be. Um, we're going to look at some uh, you know, examples uh, of how they try to interpret the Bible from a, a standpoint of natural science. Uh, look at some examples of how um, they approach it from a, a standpoint of uh, skepticism, and um, and we'll make some some conclusions. So this, is, this will be a touch academic, but this um, will help you understand a little better um, what you see on TV, and also to what liberal Christianity where where they kind of come up with some of their positions uh, on the faith. So anyhow, so the the uh, formula here is naturalism plus skepticism equals revision. That's the formula of the higher critical perspective. Naturalism being um, trying, uh, approaching something from a perspective that supernatural things cannot happen. Miracles cannot occur. God cannot speak to or inspire um, or communicate with mankind. Um, we ha- if you can't understand it through empirical sciences, um, then it then it doesn't exist. You can't believe it. You can't trust it. Plus skepticism, like a natural um, mistrust, equals revisionism. Revisionism being like basically trying rewriting history, uh, rewriting history from a position of the evidence that we have, the evidence that we've normally relied on to make our conclusions. It, we can't trust it at all. So we have to come up with it either from new evidence or through speculation. So, so anyhow. The higher critical perspective, uh, it comes out of the, um, out of the Enlightenment. Uh, this is, students, this is a period about 300 years ago in Europe. Uh, it was after the Protestant Reformation uh, when there was kind of this r- emphasis on rationalism. Um, and so basically what you're going to see is the Enlightenment mindset of being skeptical and being naturalistic makes its way into the study of the Bible in the church in Europe about 200, 300 years ago. And so there are three big events that occur um, that, that kind of take us to the, the, um, to the critical approach. Uh, first, the scientific revolution. Uh, some, of the, some of you guys may have heard in like chemistry class, um, physics class, whatever, names like uh, Kepler and Sir Isaac Newton and Galileo and Copernicus. There were all these huge advances in the world of science. And so um, people became very, very confident in um, our ability through the natural scientific process to discern truth. 
um, so you know so confident that even Descartes goes as far as to say like through mathematics we will find God. Um, so there's a there's a lot of confidence in the scientific method. Um, second, the religious wars of Europe um, after the Reformation, uh, and this is uh, this is um, this is important. Um, you have these religious wars pr- predominantly between uh, Protestants and Catholics, and like we're talking like 20% of the people in Germany died uh, in the Thirty Years' War. Um, you guys are from Europe. You, you probably probably grew up in the wake of this. Um, you know, you, you had uh, I think it was something like eight to ten million people um, who died in religious conflicts, civilians who died in religious conflicts. So, as a result of this, you know, already at the time of the Reformation, there was a lot of mistrust of the Catholic Church. Well, then you have this war where Protestants and Catholics are killing each other, and civilians are starving to death and struggling with disease and um, so on and so forth, and so there starts to become an increased mistrust um, of Christianity and of the church. Uh, and then finally, there's this tipping point moment, 1755, um, the earthquake of Lisbon. I know it's kind of funny um, that this would be one of the things, but um, this was uh, one of the biggest natural catastrophes in in, in the history of Europe. Um, you had an entire major world city completely leveled. Um, by an earthquake, uh, tens of thousands of people died, and um, people just no longer, like the answer of like, God has a plan, everything happens for a reason, like because there was such kind of mistrust of Christianity, because there was this wave of the, uh, of, of the um, scientific revolution, uh, it, people just kind of, a, a lot of people abandoned the faith. A lot of philosophers and historians point to this earthquake as a breaking point. Um, where people no longer could rely on, um, you know, the old explanations of why bad things happen. They could no longer say, well, God's got a plan. This was just so catastrophic um, that it was kind of, it blew people's schema. And, and people had already, there was already kind of a collective shallow faith in Europe. So anyhow, so with all that being said, um, out of that comes these uh, these principles that I kind of talked about earlier for that, that are transferred to... Um, to the study of the Bible. Um, naturalism, a confidence in, in what we, that we can only know truth through the scientific method. Uh, skepticism, a mistrust and a tendency to question assumptions and, ten, and, and uh, institutions. And then uncertainty, like can we really know anything? And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at naturalism in higher critical... By the way, we're going to get back to this, this history. I had to give you a little bit of background. But we're going to get back to this history channel stuff uh, in a second. But So naturalism, what you're going to see is first people start to try to interpret the Bible um, assuming that nothing supernatural can occur. Assuming that, that like the miracles didn't happen, God did not part the waters, and, uh, and so, but how do we explain the Bible? How do we explain the Bible assuming that those things just cannot happen? And that's, you know, we kind of read those, those assumptions from, uh, sorry, the statements from the Jesus Revealed documentary. You're going you're gonna to start to see some of that pop up here. So, um, some figures, and uh, this is this is one of the fathers of higher critical scholarship, Friedrich Schleiermacher. He just said we basically need to do Christianity without supernaturalism. Like we, this is this is a he was a, a very influential biblical scholar, and he's like you know we need to 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 move Christianity into a naturalistic framework. Um, here's a handsome fellow named Adolf von Harnack. Harnack. 
Uh, get ready for Rudolph Bultman. He's a real looker. Um, that's a pretty classy stash there. Like he probably hangs out, you know, in at the Revelator. When you think, <laughs> yeah, you can, totally. Um, anyhow, but um, Harnack said we cannot trust miracles. Miracles did not happen. So how do we how do we explain the Bible, um, assuming that miracles cannot happen? And then here's Rudolph Bultman. Bless his heart. Um, Rudolph, uh, one of the most influential biblical scholars of the 20th century, said we need to demythologize Christianity. We need to, you know, assume that it's all these myths that we hear about. Um, you know, we, we need to try to understand Christianity apart from the myth. Um, so anyhow, and then here's Marcus Borg. Uh, <laughs> Marcus Borg is, is more of a contemporary. He, he died in the last five years. He has a book. He used to, this is classic. Like, this is classic. Marcus Borg used to do tours of the Holy Land, and he'd take people to the places where it said Jesus did miracles. And, and in every place, he'd be like, Jesus actually was never here. And then we'd go on to the next place and be like, and Jesus wasn't actually, wasn't really here either. Um, I know, really. Isn't that, uh, I'm talking about wanting your money back at the end, but, um, Marcus Borg in, uh, in academia and in liberal Christianity today is one of the darlings of academic studies. Um, so anyhow, he says that anything that was supernatural in the Bible, that really it was just metaphors. Like they didn't really intend to communicate that Jesus actually healed people or, or, you know, um, or cast out demons or did, you know, walked on water, anything like that. They were just trying to create metaphors, which there's, there's no, um, equivalent of that in ancient literature, but Marcus Borg um, kind of invents that. So um, here's some examples. And by the way, you're going to think that I'm making this stuff up because it's so wackadoodle-doo. Um, but I promise I'm not. Like this is, this is, these are uh, in higher critical scholarship, these are um, very much mainstream accepted tenets um, in, in, in uh, you know, in, in that world. So Resurrection, alternative, uh, alternative theories to the resurrection. Um, so here's the thing. If you're trying to understand the resurrection from a naturalistic perspective, um, you, um, you know, a guy dying and, you know, being buried and then three days later rising from the dead, like, that does not comply with a natural, uh, natural scientific framework, right? And so if you're coming into the study of the Bible assuming that supernatural things cannot happen, well, you're going to have to find alternate explanations to what is attested to in the Bible and what um, was the entire message of the early church that led to um, the explosive uh, Christian movement. And so one theory is the hallucination theory. Um, this, uh, this basically, uh, in fact, I was reading, um, I was reading for, I have, I have a paper due this week, and I was reading a, uh, something from a critical commentary uh, and this was upheld as like a um, plausible explanation of the resurrection, the hallucination theory. Um, basically, it says that the apostles, in their post-traumatic stress, believe, they had a hallucinogenic experience where they collectively thought they saw Jesus risen from the dead. And they were so traumatized um, and they, um, that this hallucination was so real to them that, that yes, they wrote that they saw Jesus risen from the dead, um, but um, it, it didn't really happen. They were just kind of writing out of their crazy, if you will. They were writing out of their um, post-traumatic uh, delusional episode. And they all okay. saw the same 
And they all saw the same thing. That's exactly right. Yeah, totally. So here's um, here's the problem. It's kind of funny because this, you know, the higher critical perspective kind of fashions itself as more academic, kind of more intellectual. Um, there's no, there's no such thing in psychology as a collective post-traumatic hallucination. Like there's it's never been recorded. Um, this like the hallucination theory completely defies, you know, the study of psychology. Um, so this would have been the only time that a collective sustained hallucination occurred. Um, it would be the only time it's ever happened in recorded history, but that is uh, considered a plausible theory in the higher critical position. Um, second, Jesus resurrected in our hearts. This is the more um, this is the more kind of common or the most common uh, interpretation. But that really the the writers, the gospels, and the apostles they did not. They, weren't, they didn't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead in the bodily form. Um, what, they, what they were trying to communicate is that Jesus' uh, spirit and his teachings were so impactful on them that it was as Jesus lived on in such a real way in their life that it was as if he never died. It was as if he came alive from the dead. Can anybody tell me a problem with that based on the gospel writings? Yeah, we see in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that he preached to a crowd of over 500 at one time. So yeah, that's that's one problem. What else too about the resurrection accounts? The way that they, um, the way they talk about it. Hey, yeah, they touched him. You know, they touched his hands. They saw his wounds. He ate meals with them. Um, so uh, so anyhow, uh, and then also too, you have this expectation in the Old Testament and Jewish theology of a resurrection of the dead, like a physical resurrection. Um, so Jesus rising from the dead, like they would have already had a religious and spiritual category for that. Um, so anyhow, um, but that's a, another one as well. And the Sweeney hypothesis really isn't anymore talking about. No one really believes it anymore. But it, it was pretty popular like in the 60s and 70s. And that is that Jesus not, never actually died. Um, he, he passed out on the cross. Uh, and they just got sloppy, and they buried him alive, and three days later, he worked his way out of the tomb. Which, problem with that is most people who were um, whipped and scourged before they went to the cross bled to death before they were crucified. Um, so that Jesus made it to the, to the cross was improbable. Um, and then, you know, Jesus was not just some criminal. Like, he was, a very, he was an important kind of, um, you know, political target. So they weren't going to get sloppy with Jesus of Nazareth uh, and his resurrection. So anyhow, but again, how do they come up with these theories? They come up with these theories because they assume supernatural things can't happen, so we have to come up with an alternative to what we see in the Bible. Um, and, and those alternatives are, are not based on evidence. Those alternatives are just speculative. All right, so one more. Yeah, one more. Um, the Exodus route. So you can see here, this is a, an image of where the Bible says that uh, the Israelites crossed over the Red Sea. And you can see, if you can see it right here, it's not, a, it's not an insignificant distance. You know, there's a pretty good distance from shore to shore, so it's a walk. Well, higher critical scholars say that, you see here, they say, no, Jesus actually probably crossed like up here. I'm sorry, the Israelites crossed up here. Um, and this was a, a place where the, the Red Sea would kind of dry up, and you know, it would be, it'd basically it'd just be like walking through mud. So, you know, why do they say that? Well, because they don't believe that it's possible that God could part the Red Sea, um, that God could perform a miracle, that God is sovereign over 
uh, the natural world, and so we have to come up with an alternative. There's no evidence. Um, there's no evidence that Jesus crossed up here. There's actually more archaeological evidence that he crossed. They crossed here, and then we have the, the biblical account as well. Um, but anyhow, so there you have that. And then finally, the prophet Isaiah. Um, a a general consensus in the higher critical world on the on the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is written 700 years before Jesus comes. A big part of Isaiah is is talking about how. Um, it's talking about how, uh, whatchamacallit, oh, how Babylon is going to attack and conquer Israel. It's a historic prophecy. And so Isaiah says, look, if you don't repent, it's going to happen. And finally, he says, look, it's happening. The Babylonians are going to conquer Israel. Okay, well, 150 years later, it actually happens. Uh, and the prophecies prove to be really accurate. And so um, what higher critical scholars say is, well, actually, that second half of Isaiah, um, where those prophecies seem to be so accurate, actually was not written before the Babylonian captivity. Uh, they weren't written, you know, in, in the 8th century B.C. They were actually probably written more like in the, uh, the, the 4th century B.C. And they're more of a history. Is there evidence of that? No, there's not evidence of that. But we can't believe that God could actually deliver accurate predictions through a person and in his word, so we have to come up with another an alternative theory. So anyhow, so that's naturalism. I know this is kind of academic and I know this is, you feel like you're in a, uh, like a uh, religion 101, but, um, but the, we'll get to the, we'll, we'll get to something practical at the end. Um, see, people are just walking out. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, all right, so now we're going to look at the skeptical nature of the higher critical approach. And by the way, as I, I, this is, again, this is the approach that you will receive if you take a college religion class, most likely. And uh, like I said, unless you go to like the Covenant College or Wheaton uh, or Gordon College or somewhere like that, like this is 100% what you will be taught. This is the approach that will be taught in your college class. So um, no need to be afraid, but just be. There you go, yeah. Totally. Thank you. Appreciate that affirmation. Um, okay, so skepticism. So an important figure is this guy named Baruch Spinoza, who was actually um, he was actually Jewish, and um, but he was a skeptic, and he said, you know, we have to call everything into question. Like we can't trust anything. You know, can we really believe anything about God? Can we really believe anything about the Bible? We need to throw everything, you know, up for grabs. And, you know, kind of start from the beginning with a more skeptical, kind of critical approach. And so what you see is that um, in terms of like Western thought, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche amplifies that even more. And you can kind of see that today. Like we are a very, very skeptical culture. Um, we don't believe like what we hear. There's, there's a good reason for that, you know, um, especially, you know, like on Facebook. Um, so, you know, this is a fellow named Bart Ehrman. Bart is a professor at UNC Chapel Hill, um, and Bart wrote a book called Forged, and he says that um, of the books of the New Testament, the 27 books, that at least 11 were forged. Um, he says that you know it was people were trying to get their agenda across uh, in the you know the fight for what would be considered Orthodox Christianity. And, um, and he said that there would be people who would write these books of the Bible um, under the name of an apostle, like, say, Paul or 
James wrote this, or Matthew wrote this, but really, the apostles didn't write it. Really, it was some, you know, um, <laughs> it was some, I don't even know what the word would be, uh, activist or <laughs> whatever, who, um, who wrote them, and, and it was all a lie. It was all a forgery. Um, and he says that there were another seven books of the New Testament so now, that, were, that were accidentally attributed to an apostle, but they weren't actually written by the apostles. So only uh, nine of the books of the New Testament were actually written by the people who said that they were written. Does he have any like hard evidence of this? No, he really doesn't. Um, but uh, this is, you know, this is his theory. You know, and so you can just see the skepticism. That, you know, like two-thirds of the books of the Bible weren't written by the people who said they wrote them. Or that, that the people in the early church said wrote them. Um, so anyhow, so some more examples of this. Um, this is this is classic. All right, so um, there's a general, of, of the few critical scholars who believe that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, most do not believe that he wrote the book of Colossians. Why? Because Colossians and Ephesians are too much alike. Right? I mean, Colossians is so much like Ephesians, and it's true. I mean, the theology, the message, the content, they're really, really similar. Um, they say, because the content is so similar, we know that it was really someone who was writing a forgery. Um, they were, they're so similar that you could see they were trying really, really hard to make it sound like Paul wrote it so they could pass it off as Paul's work. I know, Okay. I mean, one explanation could be that Paul wrote both of them, and that's why they're so similar, but, you know, anyhow, uh, <laughs> you know, I guess that wouldn't get published. Um, but then at the same time, First and Second Peter, they say, Peter, if he wrote the first one, he definitely couldn't have written the second one. Why? They sound a little too different. Okay, now wait a minute, hold on, hold on. Over here, they're so similar that it's a forgery. Over here, they're so different that it's a forgery. Uh, you know, go, um, I, you know, can't have it both ways, but there, there you have it. Um, here's another one for you. you this, is, this is remarkable. Okay, so uh, you, uh, some of you may be familiar with the quote from the Gospels, pay unto Caesar um, what's due to Caesar, pay unto the Lord what's due to the Lord. Okay, so there is um, a redactionary scholar who says, Matthew didn't really write that. Or, you know, Jesus didn't say that. And it wasn't in the original Gospels. Really, what you have here is there was someone in the early church who was trying to get in good with the Roman government. And there was a conflict between the church and, and the local Roman government. And to kind of smooth things over, they added this into the Gospel account um, because it would make Christianity seem a little more sympathetic uh, to the Roman government. Um, is there evidence that that happened? No, there's absolutely no evidence that ha- that happened. Um, this is just entirely based on speculation, but that's kind of a norm. Okay, and then this is the last one. And there actually used to be someone who went to this church who was on the Jesus Seminar. Um, and if you're in this room, I, we can have a coffee afterwards. I, I, uh, I don't mean to be critical, but uh, this should be my honest opinion. Um, the uh, Jesus Seminar was in the ni- like 1985, I think, 1980s. And it was... Um, Basically, about 150 people, mainly two New Testament scholars, who came together and they wanted to try to find who the real Jesus was. Like, what did Jesus really say? And they assumed that what's in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that Jesus, we can't really trust whether or not Jesus said that. So 
they came, each having marbles of different colors, uh, and they voted. They would go line by line through the Gospels, and they would all vote on whether they thought Jesus um, actually said it or not. And if it got enough marbles, then they would keep it in. And if it didn't get enough marbles, they would kick it out. And the Jesus Seminar developed a new, new Gospel accounts. Um, new Gospel accounts, and only about like 30% of what we have in our Gospels did they retain. 70% was thrown out. And they also added in um, the Gospel of Thomas, which uh, is they included that as one of the Gospels, which there is no way that the Gospel of Thomas was written by Thomas, that it was written within 100, within 100 years of Jesus' life. And if you read the content of the Gospel of Thomas, which I recommend you do, you'll see that it is in, in no way resembles Christianity. Like, for example, at the end of the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the, disi- the disciples asked Jesus, how will Mary Magdalene get be saved? Um, and uh, in Gnostic thought, which Th- Thomas is an Gnostic gospel, uh, women could not be saved uh, because uh, salvation came through intellectual superiority and they thought women were intellectually inferior. So Jesus, according to the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus uh, would have to be... No, sorry. Jesus said that Mary Magdalene would transform into a man. She'd have a gender transition. Uh, and through that change in gender, she would be saved. So that, there's a reason that the early church threw that gospel out um, and said it was heretical, um, but the Jesus Seminar considered it legitimate and included it in their study of the gospels. So anyhow, there you go. All right, so why is this important? Um, what's the agenda behind the critical approach? And, and some of this you, we can obviously be sympathetic to. Um, some of it not as much. But first is, you know, Christianity was losing steam in Europe. Um, you know, starting 300 years ago, and you know, to a point where Christianity is has a very, very, very small uh, footprint in Europe at all today. And so, people were starting to worry. Hey, um, this like what we're what we're doing, like what we have here um, in the gospel, what we have here in the Word of God, uh, it's not working, and the world is passing us by, and we need to adapt to a changing world. And so, rather than adapting by ways of of you know, how the Bible was communicated or uh, adapting in ways of you know, engaging the culture. Instead, they, cha- they wanted to basically change the message. People aren't going to take us serious if we, seriously if we believe in miracles. People aren't going to take us seriously if we believe uh, in a resurrection from the dead. People aren't going to take us seriously if we believe in things like heaven and hell and salvation through faith in Christ. So what we need to do is we need to adjust the content of Christianity so that it sounds more palatable to the culture. And that just doesn't work. Like it just, because, it, I mean, you defy the truth. You know, you defy the message of Christ, you defy the gospel, you defy the word of God. And so, um, but that, that's a lot of what's behind that is kind of this fear of we need to adjust our message. We can all kind of personally, you know, uh, identify with that. Uh, we can all be self-conscious with some of the things that, um, you know, that you may believe uh, if you're a kind of a, a Bible-believing Christian. Uh, and so that was a lot of what's behind there. A second part is there is um, uh, a, there is a, a, an attempt to distance the biblical message from Jesus to suggest that we don't really know what Jesus taught. Um, a big theme in critical scholarship uh, is this idea that what what we consider like historic Orthodox Christianity, the stuff that we have in like our confessions and our creeds and our liturgy, the kind of the basics that you you know. The basics that 
that come out of the Bible. Um, what critical scholarship wants to say is, did Jesus really say that? No, you know, we can't really we we can't really know what Jesus said. And so they kind of wanted to have this idea that that Christianity is kind of up for grabs. It was up for grabs, and well, the the message that we hear is orthodox historic Orthodox Christianity. Well, there was just this one camp, that historic camp. And they just won out over all these competing camps. Um, and so basically, they kind of want the uh, the message to be uncertain, and 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 because um, because uh, we all want to make up our own message, right? We all want to make up our own truth. We all want to be the Lord of our own life. I mean, that's that's what I wake up wanting to do every morning. Um, that's the that's my sin nature. Um, and so, consequently, um, you know, the last point there, wanting to adapt the message from something that can be individually into something that can be individually crafted, and does not require that we submit to the lordship of Jesus and His Word. Um, we just we have to, you know, it's very easy, uh, and hopefully, I haven't done this too badly. Uh, in this class, but it's very easy to demonize um, higher critical approach or people in liberal Christianity um, and be very self-righteous towards them. And the reality is that uh, every day, none of us uh, want to submit our lives to Christ and to his word. Uh, that's something that we all wrestle with every day. But that's the call of Christ. Like That's the response to the gospel. Um, like when a person becomes a Christian, um, the, uh, you know, their, their sins are forgiven, they are secure for eternity, and Jesus becomes the king of their life, the leader of their life. Um, and that's mediated primarily through his word. So, uh, so anyhow, it's very, very hard for us to do as human beings, to, to, to submit to anyone's authority, right? <laughs> Whether that's your boss or, um, you know, your teacher or the police officer or whoever it is, um, you know, or your parents, no one really likes to submit to another person's authority. And yet, that's, that's the proper response to the gospel, to submit ourselves to the authority of God um, through his word. So, so anyhow, so we can, we can all kind of get that. All right, practical points. Um, the Bible is God's word is central to our faith. Uh, we, just ha- we, we can't lose sight of that. The, the things that we believe about God, the assurances that we have, the promises of God, they all come out of the Bible. And so um, studying the Bible, reading the Bible, knowing the Bible, listening to podcasts, um, where the Bible's taught, they're really, really valuable for us. Um, they're, uh, they're foundational to us growing in Christ. Second, if we can't believe in supernatural stuff, like Christianity is worthless. <laughs> because the, the premise of supernaturalism is that like God uh, is real. Like God is alive in our world. God can do stuff. Like when we pray, uh, we believe that God responds. You know, if we have an anxious heart and we pray, that God would give us peace, we actually believe that the God of the universe can reach down into our world, into our lives, and like affect our hearts such that we have peace. When you know, Mammal is in the hospital uh, you know, with a broken hip, or a friend is in the hospital with cancer, whatever it is, when we pray like, that they would be healed or that God would protect them, we are believing that God can actually physically affect their condition. So, you know, if we can't believe in the supernatural, then like the, the, you know, the Christianity is of no use. Our faith is worthless. And so um, we have to, I say this a lot, you hear me say this a lot, we are uh, ancestors, uh, or sorry, ancestors or descendants? Descendants of, descendants of the Enlightenment. You know, like we, we naturally, because of the, the cultural waters that we swim in, 
we are naturally uh, more naturalistic. We are naturally more skeptical. And so we need to kind of be aware that we already kind of bring that to the table ourselves uh, when we're talking about the Bible and we're talking about Christ. And then finally, um, I've already said this, but our sin nature resists the acceptance of our sin and the need for Christ resists the lordship of Jesus in our lives. So um, we have three minutes for questions, if anybody has any questions. I hope it did not bore everyone out of your mind. Yes, Lauren. Well said. I mean, totally. Think about higher criticism, so many of those theories come out of just the past 50 years of um, dissertation, competition, getting your dissertations approved. Um, I know Deborah mentioned that to us once. But in that light of that, I have a six year old who asks me on a daily basis who wrote Hebrews. Yeah. Yes. Okay, that is such a good question. That is such a good question. Here's the thing we do not claim to know who wrote Hebrews. And just to say that we don't just believe this, you know, believe that Paul wrote it because that's what everyone said, so we have to believe it. Like, we believe it based on what the internal document says and what people in the early church said about the authorship. So with Hebrews, there is n- there is no, it doesn't say in the, in the text itself, the book of Hebrews, who wrote it. And in the, in the early church, you had different views on who wrote it. Some people said Paul, some people said Luke, some people said Apollos, and so... You know, we want to, we're not, we're not, you know, discounting using your brain and being, you know, evidence-based people. So that's why we say we don't know who wrote Hebrews. You know, like, um, we, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah. And so we, being, you know, being, based on the evidence, we don't know who wrote it. But, but we, but we know that it was accepted as apostolic and as the word of God in the early church. Um, so that's why. I hope that was a good answer. Yeah, and so like the reason that we believe that Paul wrote his letters is because in most of them Paul said like that he wrote them. He had you know uh, a very similar style and structure and message, and you know different people in the early church said this was written by Paul. So uh, it's internal and external evidence. Any other questions? Yes, sir. <coughs> Do you mean like in the... Oh, that's a great question. Uh, Karl Barth, one of the most significant theologians of the 20th century. Uh, he would kind of be an example um, because he grew up very much in the higher critical camp and he was preaching on Sunday and he said, I, didn't have, I don't have anything to preach on. I don't have a message because like any kind of uh, Christian substance, any kind of message has all been like zapped from the word. And so he moved into uh, an historic camp. His view on the Bible's word of God is very complicated. The guy wrote like, I mean, thousands and thousands upon thousands of pages of stuff. So it's hard to nail him down theologically. But he would be an example of someone who was in that camp who moved over to a conservative camp. And then also, too, you come across, like I've had a professor in, um, in seminary who he was, he was in the higher critical camp and just found the, the scholarship not very strong and um, and kind of changed over his approach to the Bible. Um, C.S. Lewis, that's a good, yeah, that's another good example. Cameron, is there a, is there a book or a resource that you would recommend for people to use to sort of kind of reply to the higher critical school? Is there something that's easily consumable? Um, 
Yeah, you know, here's the, yeah. Well, I would say this. There's not something that's easily, um, easily uh, accessible, but um, a good example would be Carson and Moo, their introduction to the New Testament. D.A. Carson and, uh, I, think, I can't remember Moo's first name. Doug Moo, that's a lot. Okay, so anyhow, in, like, in any historic commentary, they're going to uh, say what the critical position is on the book, like on the authorship or on different passages. And they're going to say, like, in a, in a way that I think is usually fair, they're going to say, um, this is legitimate, this is not legitimate. Uh, and they're going to explain in light of the, the critical approach. So, like where, like, where I've done seminary and where most of the people here, minus Matt Schneider, who went to Yale, um, you have to, when you write papers, you have to write from both, you have to include critical sources and historic sources in your papers so that you fairly engage it. So that you, you, know, you, you kind of, know both sides of the argument. Um, I have a paper due on Tuesday. God help me. 20 pages. Lord help me. Um, and I've had a, that's what I've been doing a lot this weekend, just reading critical sources. So, anyhow. Um, all right, any other questions? It's probably late, so I'll pray for us, and then if you want to chitty chat around the, uh, the water cooler, we can do that. Um, Lord, uh, thanks so much for your word. Thanks so much um, for giving us yourself. And Lord, help us to have faith. Um, it's, it's hard for us. Um, as Westerners, to, be, to believe. And, uh, but, but belief is, is a grace. And so we pray, God, that you would um, give, us, uh, give us faith uh, where we have unbelief and, and give us grace where we are. Trust you. We love you. I ask your prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.